It's good to be together. Uh, I see a lot of family with us, so I especially want to say welcome to those who brought family. Uh, you guys might have noticed there are, uh, there are not two Candaces in the room this morning. There's Candace and her twin sister, Ruthann, but we're glad to have Ruthann and Satya here and more of her families in town as well. Uh, but it's good to, good to be with family at Christmas time. And, and, you know, about a month ago, we went to see my family uh, at uh, Thanksgiving up in Maryland. And, you know, we expected a typical Thanksgiving week with our family. And when we got there, like, literally right as we walk into the house, uh, one of my family members is taking a COVID test. <laughs> and, and, of course, it's positive. And uh, it's like we just drove 13 hours into a, a COVID pit here. And uh, one by one by one, they all got COVID. Uh, now, we had had it, and so, you know, we were, we're immune, we're, but, but our, our expectations definitely had to change for the week, right? How many of you have ever been in a situation where you had to adjust your expectations, where, where, where you, you signed up for something that was not what you thought it was going to be? That's what happened to us that week. Many people experience this when they get married, right? Uh, as you approach marriage, you just think it's going to be just easy and fun and wonderful all the time, but after you're married, you realize that your expectations weren't quite right. It's actually not that easy to share your life with another person, especially when that person is the opposite sex, especially when you're both sinners, then it's really not easy. And the thing is, in marriage, if you don't adjust those wrong expectations, then that marriage is not going to last. If, if, if you don't if you don't start thinking rightly about what marriage is and what you're called to do, then, then you're not going to make it. You know, this can happen in becoming a Christian, too. Many people have become Christians with wrong expectations of what it actually means to follow Christ. They're told that your life will be better, your life will be easier, your life will, you won't struggle so much, and, and, they, and they think that becoming a Christian will, will solve things for them, and then once they realize it doesn't, once they realize that life is still hard, maybe even more hard, and what do they do? They, they, they turn away. They don't continue in their faith. But what's the problem? The problem is that their expectations were wrong. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches in the first place. This problem is not new. The disciples had an expectations problem too. Uh, they, they, what they thought following Christ was going to look like when they began following him was not what following Christ was actually going to look like. And Jesus went to great lengths to reorient their understanding, to adjust their expectations so that they would not turn back when following him became difficult. And what he said to them uh, back then is still something that we need to hear today, that we need to hear this morning. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, we're in verses 34 through 39 this morning. This is part of our series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. And in Matthew 10, here's what we have learned so far about following Jesus. Is, is at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus calls his followers to go to the lost. Jesus, Jesus calls his followers on mission to go to those who are lost and to proclaim the gospel to them and to extend his ministry to them. So following Jesus means following him in his mission and then in the middle of the chapter, a turn takes place where Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And from then on, Jesus says, As you go, as you take this gospel, as you, as you extend my ministry, you are going to face hostility. You are going to face persecution. You are going to face suffering. You, you may even face death itself. And you know, the disciples, we, we don't think about it because we 
we have history on our side now. We see what the disciples went through as, as Acts unfolds and as early church history unfolds. But, but think about just how they would have been hearing all this as, as they're listening to Jesus send them out and talk about the persecution that's coming. This would have been jarring to them, right? This is not what they thought was going to happen. And Jesus knows this. And so as he comes to the conclusion of this discourse in chapter 10, he is going to seek to reorient their understanding of why he came and what that means for following him. And so the passage is Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Let's read it. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In these verses, we see four truths that should reframe our expectations for following Jesus. Four, four truths that, that we need to hear today so we understand why did Jesus come and what does that mean for what it's going to be like to follow him in this world. The first truth is, is, is the reason Jesus came. The reason Jesus came. And, and I want to just say for a minute that we've been thinking about Jesus coming all month, right? Christmas was yesterday. So for the last four weeks or so, we've been thinking about the incarnation, the Son of God coming into the world as a little baby through the virgin birth, the incarnation. And, and I want to ask why. Why did he come? And if you look at some of our favorite Christmas carols, here are some things that you'll see. Jesus came to give joy to the world, right? It's our kid's favorite song, right? Joy to the world. Jesus came to bring peace on earth and mercy mild. Jesus came to bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. I mean, these are the things that we sing at Christmas time, right? Jesus came to bring peace and joy and love to the world. But that's not how this passage begins. In Jesus' own words, it says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I mean, that is like the anti-Christmas message, right? Like, that is not Christmas. It's the day after Christmas, okay? So Christmas was yesterday. No, what, what, what is this? I, I thought he was bringing peace to the earth. Didn't we just read peace on earth from Luke chapter 2? Why is Jesus saying that he did not come to bring peace to the earth? Why did he come? Well, we need to understand what was, again, what was in the disciples' minds when he says this. When he says, I did not come to bring peace to the earth, he's speaking to the disciples' expectation of, of a Messiah that fits the category of Isaiah chapter 9. Another one of our favorite Christmas passages. We read it last week here. Isaiah 9. You can turn there for a minute. Isaiah chapter 9. Should be a very familiar passage to you. You hear it in, in Christmas songs and Christmas messages all the time. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and with justice from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This was the Messiah that the disciples were looking for. The Prince of Peace, the Son of David, the King who would establish Israel in the kingdom of God and, and who would judge their enemies and, and who would bring the, the peace of God's kingdom to the earth. That's who they were looking for. And yet Jesus says, don't think I've come to do that. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. He's saying that that's not why I came. I did not come to establish the kingdom of God and the peace of God on the earth yet. And you know what, church? This is good news for us. It is good news that Jesus did not come 2,000 years ago to bring peace to the earth. Because if he had, you know what? Every single one of us would be excluded from that kingdom of peace. If Jesus had come to bring peace to the earth 2,000 years ago, one aspect of establishing that peace is judging the wicked. In Isaiah 9, the verse right before what we just read, I turned away from it, I'm going to turn back there. Isaiah 9, right before we read, to us the Son is given, what do we read about this Messiah? He says, For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tuma, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. See, before peace comes, judgment comes. Judgment on the wicked, judgment on the enemies of God's people. But here's the problem, is that every one of us is wicked. The Bible teaches that we're all sinners. The Bible teaches that we all deserve this judgment. We've all rejected the glory of God. We, 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 we all deserve that judgment. And so, if he had come to establish peace, that would not be good news for us. It, it would be good, it would be righteous, but it would not be a message of salvation for us. But Jesus did not come to bring peace to the earth in that sense. No, Jesus came to bring peace between God and sinners. Jesus did not come to fulfill Isaiah 9 immediately. No, Jesus came to fulfill Isaiah 53. Jesus did not come to save his people from their enemies. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Jesus came, he took on our humanity so that he could represent us in living the perfect life. He never sinned. He never disobeyed the law. He never disobeyed the Father's will. He loved God and others perfectly his entire life. The only man to ever live a perfect, sinless life. And then he laid down his life on a cross. And that work on the cross was not just some vague, abstract example of love. Just for us to see this is what love looks like. Let's try to love people better. No, that, that work on the cross was an act of salvation in that Jesus was taking on the judgment that we deserve. He was absorbing the judgment that we deserve in our place. He was dying the death we deserve to die. And then he rose again, vindicating the fact that, that the Father said that I've accepted this sacrifice on behalf of sinners. And here's the way that 2 Corinthians 5 says it. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In Christ, God was making peace with sinners by forgiving our sins. But that forgiveness is not just a brushing sin under the rug. No, it's a forgiveness that comes in Christ who became sin for us, who died for our sins, 
and then gives us his righteousness. This is why he came. Jesus came to establish peace between God and sinners. And only those who have peace with God can have the hope of the peace he will one day bring on this earth. Jesus came not to bring peace to the earth, but to bring peace between God and sinners. Now this leads to the next part of what he says in Matthew chapter 10. We see the reason Jesus came. Second, we see the sword Jesus brings. The sword Jesus brings. Do not think that I come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, let's talk about what this doesn't mean first, all right? Jesus did not come to put a physical sword in the hands of his disciples and say, go, slaughter your enemies. No, we, he, didn't do that. He, didn't, he didn't come to, give, to, to call us into a crusade or a holy war against all the heathens. No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus called his disciples not to resist those who, who were evil. Jesus called them to pray for their enemies, to love their enemies. And so we know that a sword does not mean that he's saying, I've, I've come to give an instrument of violence to my people so that they can wage holy war on the world. No, that's not what he means. So what does he mean then? What, what kind of sword is this? Well, you see, Jesus says, For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus here is quoting Micah chapter 7, almost word for word. And it's important to understand what's happening in Micah chapter 7. The prophet Micah is prophesying to Israel God's message of judgment on their wickedness. And, and as he is in the midst of this wickedness, he realizes that as he preaches the message of God's coming judgment, that even his own household is an untrustworthy place to be. He warns the faithful in Israel, don't even trust the, the one who lies in your arms. Don't trust your father. Don't trust your son. Because, because they're wicked. Because they have rejected God's message. That's the, that's the context of Micah. They've rejected the message that God has sent. And Jesus says, I've come to bring that about. So what is the sword? If it relates to Micah and his prophecy and the people rejecting the message of God then, and Jesus says, I've come to bring that situation about. What is the sword? Well, in a, in a paradox, the sword is the gospel of peace. The sword Jesus brings is the gospel of peace that we proclaim. Now think about this for a minute. You see in the text, it, it divides. This sword divides even our closest relationships. And that's what the message of reconciliation does as we proclaim the peace of God in the world, which is what he's sending them out to do. This whole chapter is about that, right? He's sending them out to proclaim the gospel as we do that, some will receive it, but many will reject it. Why will they reject it? Because sinful man does not want to hear that they are sinners who need to repent and submit to God as their king and creator. And so they reject it and they become hostile to it. The sword is, is this message of peace with God that people reject and then become hostile to. That's the sword Jesus brings. And here's what we learn. Faithful proclamation of the gospel results in painful division because of the gospel. I'll say that again. Faithful proclamation of the gospel results in painful division because of the gospel. We see this. I, I, I met someone a few years ago who became a Christian as an adult. He had a wife. He had kids. He, he became a Christian. And his wife left him. 
and his wife told his kids that he was crazy and a fanatic. And they left him, and they rejected him. This was his life, completely alone because of the gospel. You have parents whose kids will grow up to reject the faith and the pain that that brings to the parents. You have situations in other countries where where someone uh, knows that if I, if I accept Christ, or if I, if I tell this person to accept Christ, that means that their entire community is going to shun them, or even hurt them, or even put them to death. These, this, is, this is what the sword of the gospel does. It divides even our closest relationships. And it's, it's painful. This may be the most painful aspect of persecution we can imagine. Not just, not just enemies out there rejecting us, but those we love, those we care about rejecting us. Faithful proclamation of the gospel results in painful division because of the gospel. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to expect this, teaching us to expect this. And when these painful divisions happen, this is where we need to hear what Jesus says Next, we've seen the reason Jesus came was to bring peace between God and man. This gospel of peace then becomes a sword as we proclaim it and it divides even the closest relationships we have. This leads to the third truth we see in this passage, the allegiance that Jesus demands. The allegiance Jesus demands. Look at what he says next in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I want you to notice first just the way Jesus speaks here. This is not the way that a typical person talks. Like, I'm not going to come and say, you're not worthy of me. Because there's nothing in me to, to say that, right? But Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows he is the Son of God. Yes, veiled in humility, veiled in humility. But Jesus knows he is the King of Kings. He is the Son of God. And so, so he speaks of being worthy of him. Which is a way to say, who, who is fit to be my disciple? Who is fit to follow me? He frames it negatively. He says, the one who loves his family more than him is not worthy of him. So, so this is directly relating to what he just said. I've come to set a man against his father and a, and a daughter against her mother. Your, your enemies will be of your own household. And, and as you experience the pain of that, the temptation is to forsake Christ for the sake of your family. The temptation is, is I, I'd rather keep this family member who I love in my life than, than experience this division for the sake of Jesus. And Jesus says you can't do that. You, you must love Jesus supremely. You must love him more than anyone else. Your allegiance is to him above everyone else. He calls for supreme love. Only those who love Jesus supremely are worthy of following Jesus. And then he expands it even further. He says, the one who does not take up his cross and follow him is not worthy of him. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus calls the disciples to take up their cross. Now, we've heard that so many times that we don't think much of it, but, but think about the disciples hearing that for the first time. Take up my cross, an instrument of execution, an instrument of death and suffering. Whoever does not do that is not worthy of me, cannot be my disciple, cannot follow me. 
It's a picture of self-denial. It's a picture of, of losing your life for the sake of Jesus. Only those who are surrendered to Jesus absolutely are worthy of Jesus. If you put these pictures together, then, then who is worthy of Jesus? What's the answer to that question? Who is worthy of following Jesus? And here's the answer Jesus gives. Those who believe that Jesus is worth losing everything for. That's who's worthy of Jesus. Those who believe that Jesus is worth losing everything for. If you don't believe that he's worth losing it all, if you don't believe that, that he is worth losing everything in your life for, then Jesus said, you are not worthy of me. This is the allegiance Jesus demands. It's complete, it's total, it's supreme, it is absolute devotion and surrender and love for him. But here's the question that we need to ask. Is Jesus worth losing everything for? That's what he demands. But is he worth that? Should you do that? Should you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus? Is that, is that a good thing? Is that a wise thing to do? Is that something that makes sense? Is he worth it? And this leads to the final point Jesus makes to his disciples and to us. It's the life that Jesus promises. The life Jesus promises. In verse 39, he says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, we'll find it. Jesus is such a good teacher, and he lays out here, as simply as possible, two ways to live. There's, there's two ways we can live our lives. One way is we can seek to find our life here and now. Which is to say that you live for yourself. You live for what you can get out of life. You, you live for the here and now. You, you figure out whatever, whatever you think life is is that will bring you the most happiness and the most pleasure. That's what you do. You live, you live for those things. And Jesus says, if you do that, if you find your life, whatever that might look like for you, family, success, uh, money, business, retirement, charity, whatever that might look like for you, you find your life. If you live for the here and now, you will lose your life. In the end, you will lose it all. You know, this is the message of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the, the author of Ecclesiastes, he, he did everything. He had everything. He pursued everything. And then he realized, and I'm going to die. And it's all going to be taken away from me. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you seek to find your life, you will lose it. If you live for the here and now, you need to realize that, that pretty soon it's all going to be gone. None of it will last. You can't take any of it with you. And further, when you die, you don't just die and cease to exist, but according to the teaching of the Bible, you will die and then you will continue in eternity under the wrath of God forever and ever. You will lose your life in the most definitive way you can imagine. This is what will happen to those who live for the here and now for themselves. But Jesus says there's another way. There's another way to live. The other way to live is to lose your life here and now for the sake of Jesus. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is to say that you live your life for Jesus' glory. That's what you're about. That, that, that's, that's what your life is about. My life is about Jesus. My life is for Jesus. Every aspect of my life, my family, my job, my money, my goals, my ambitions, my, my rest, my, all of it is about Jesus. It's all for his glory. It's all for his mission. I am completely surrendered to, to him. I'm living for him now. That's what Jesus says. You, you, you lose your life now for his sake, and here's the promise. Those who live in the here and now for his sake 
will have life both now and forever. Jesus promises eternal life in him. And there is life in no one else. There is life in no one else but Jesus. We are sinners who deserve death and who deserve judgment. And there is no other way of salvation than to come to Jesus and lose it all and live for him. This is the promise Jesus gives. And if Jesus is the only one who can give us life, then that means it's worth it. That means it's worth the pain of division in your family. That's worth, it's, that means it's worth losing everything. That means it's worth denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. If he's the one who can give us life and if no one else can, then he's worth it. You know what the Bible teaches? Is that this life that he holds out to us is not just this happy life that Jesus gets us into. This life is defined by the presence of Jesus himself. Later in John, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Which means that this life he's holding out to us, is, it's life with him. He's the joy. He's the one who's worth it. You lose everything because you get Jesus. You lose everything because you gain Christ. He's worthy of it all. Jesus is worth it. That's really the message Jesus is communicating to his disciples here in chapter 10. I'm worth it. Whatever it costs, whatever suffering you experience, whatever division might come, whatever persecution might come, I am worth it all. There is nothing that could happen to you that's not worth following me to the end. Church, that's true for you too. There's nothing that could happen in your life that should cause you to turn back from following Jesus because he is worth it all. Jesus is life itself. Jesus is the glory of God that we were made for. He is the kindness and grace and goodness of God. He is the joy that we truly desire. He is worth it all. I'll make three applications as we close this morning. First, this, this passage challenges us to understand who receives eternal life. Who is it that will be saved? Who is it that will go to heaven? Now, we stand firmly in the Protestant tradition that salvation is by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. But we live in a culture that has so cut away at that concept that living by faith alone has become for many, salvation by faith alone has become for many, salvation by saying a prayer. Salvation by simply saying, I'm a Christian. Salvation by simply saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But that's not what this passage teaches at all, is it? Eternal life is for those who lose their life for the sake of Jesus. Eternal life is for those who love Jesus more than anything else. Eternal life is for those who take up their cross and follow Jesus. So how do we reconcile those things? Do, it, do we get eternal life because of what we do or because of what we believe? And I think here's how we reconcile these, these truths. True faith is seeing who Jesus is, seeing what he has done, and believing that he's worth losing everything for. True faith doesn't just acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again. True faith goes a step further and says, and he is worth my life. And I want him more than anything else. That's biblical faith. 
True faith moves toward Jesus and surrenders to Jesus and lives for Jesus. True faith loves Jesus more than anything. True faith denies itself and takes up its cross. True faith means losing your life for his sake. This is who receives eternal life. Now this leads to the second application is if that who receives eternal life, then, then maybe you're here today and realize that, that you are not saved. Maybe you thought you believed, but you really, as you examine your life, you realize, I'm, but I'm not living for Jesus. I've not actually surrendered to Jesus. I've just said I'm a Christian. If that's you, then the call this morning is to be reconciled to God. Jesus came to bring peace between you and God. Jesus came to bring you back to God. Jesus came to die for sins and rise again so that you can be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life in him. So be reconciled to God this morning. One day that that peace to earth is coming and that will be a day of salvation for those who believe and a day of judgment for those who don't. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the opportunity to respond to the message of peace and to confess your sins to God, to turn away, to repent, and to give your life to Jesus. Be reconciled to God this morning. Confess that you're a sinner. Confess that you need Jesus to be your Savior and give your life and your heart to Him this morning. Be reconciled to God. And finally, church, again, remember that Jesus is worth it all. As you follow him and inevitably experience the pain of following him, the pain of division, the pain of broken relationships on account of the gospel, remember that Jesus is worth it. Some of you have things in your past already that you can, you can say, you could get up here and tell us today he is worth it. Share that with other people. Encourage them that way. Some of you are going through things right now and you're not sure, is, is he worth this? Should I keep going? Yes, keep going. Life is at the end of this. And some of you, listen, some of you have so much in front of you, you don't know what's going to happen in your family. You don't know what's going to happen with your kids one day. You don't know what will come. Remember now, be prepared now, Jesus is worth it. Whatever comes, he is worth loving and losing my life for. I want to close by reading from Revelation chapter 5, which beautifully unfolds to us the worth of Jesus Christ. Revelation 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb 
each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense with the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. He is the lion who was slain as a lamb for our sins. And he rose again and he lives forever. He is worthy, church, of all your love and all your life.